We have answered many questions this season. Questions about Christian colleges, spies for Russia, the JFK assassination. In this season finale of The Story Is, we answer a question that involves politics, scandal, and religion. It's a simple question, yet not so simple. In fact, it has many more strings attached than one would think. The question? Why would someone give a U.S. president a wheel of cheese? I'm Sam Logan, and you're listening to the podcast The Story Is, the podcast where we talk about the past, the present, and the personal. This episode is entitled A Tale of Two Cheeses. In this episode, you're getting two stories that have an odd connection. Cheese. The better-known story, or the well-known story, is the one of President Andrew Jackson and an enormous White House cheese that was presented on New Year's Day in 1836. It had been created by a prosperous dairy farmer from the New York State, Thomas Meacham. Now, Meacham wasn't a political ally of Andrew Jackson. In fact, he would have considered himself a member of the Whig Party. This gift was motivated by local pride. Pride in New York. Meacham was using this big, huge wheel of cheese to say, hey, great big things are being made and happening in New York. The Wheel of Cheese took a tour that included New York, Philadelphia, Baltimore, and the tree and the cheese arrived at Jackson's White House, where he kept it on display for a year. Then, during the final part of his party, he threw as president in 1837. Jackson allowed anyone and everyone to get their fill of the open-air aged New York cheese. Jackson issued a letter to Meacham on January 1st of 1836. The letter said in part, I beg you, sir, to assume those who have united with you in the preparation of these presents in honor of the Congress of the United States and myself that they are truly gratifying as an evidence of the prosperity of our hardy yeomanry in the state of New York who are engaged in the labor of dairy. The cheese reception was held on Washington's birthday. The gathering, according to all in the article in Farmer's Cabinet in March 3rd, 1837, was, a, was crowded to excess. For hours did a crowd of men, women, and boys hack at the cheese, many taking large hunks of it away with them. When they commenced, the cheese weighed 1,400 pounds, and only a small piece was saved for the president's use. The air was redolent, 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 with cheese. The carpet was slippery with cheese, and nothing else was talked about at Washington that day. Even the scandal about the wife of the president's secretary of war was forgotten in the tumultuous jubilant of that great occasion. That scandal was caused when President Jackson nominated John Eaton as the secretary of war. Why was this scandalous? Eaton's wife, Margaret, 
supposedly had many affairs with married men before marrying Eaton. Margaret Peggy Eaton had been raised in a boarding house frequently frequented by Washington politicians and became an astute observer of politics as well as an accomplished musician and dancer. It is said that she charmed many of the boarding house's tenants, including then-Senator Andrew Jackson and his friend John Eaton. When she first met Jackson and Eaton, she was married to a Navy officer. Eaton enjoyed Margaret's wit and intelligence and escorted her to social functions when her husband was at sea. Suddenly, Margaret's first husband died. Rumors started to spread that the husband had committed suicide over his wife's rumored affair with Eaton. The affair was denied by Margaret and Eaton. They said they were nothing more than friends. In addition to Margaret's reputation, her passionate nature, flirtatious and outspokenness, did not ingratiate herself to Washington's society of matrons at a time when those qualities were considered unseemly in women. When Eaton and Margaret married shortly after her husband's death, the ladies of Washington society ostracized the new couple. In fact, the vice president, John Calhoun's wife, led Washington's elite in snubbing the Eatons at social gatherings. Jackson sympathized with and supported his friend Eaton. Jackson's late wife, Rachel, had also been the subject of social gossip in the world of Washington. When someone advised Jackson against Eaton, making him his secretary of war because of Margaret's reputation, Jackson barked, Do you suppose that I have been sent here by the people to consult with the ladies of Washington as to the proper person to compose my cabinet? For the rest of Jackson's first term, his opponents used the Eaton affair, or the Petticoat affair, as it was known, to attack the president's moral judgment and his administration's policies. But the other reason Jackson got a big wheel of cheese? Jackson's admirers thought that every honor which Thomas Jefferson had ever received should be paid to him. So some of them residing in the rural district of New York got together to give a mammoth cheese to old Hickory. That's right. Jackson was given a big wheel of cheese because old Thomas Jefferson got one first. Before Andrew Jackson's cheese was Thomas Jefferson's mammoth cheese. Because of the political climate of the time, there was this fear placed on the new Republican president Thomas Jefferson was seen as the radical, the infidel of the French Revolution, that he would overthrow religious institutions, that he would harm the religious interests, that he would demolish the altars of the New England and all the religious institutions, and they would just be swept away. But one pastor disagreed, Elder John Leland. Leland had met Jefferson during his time in Virginia, and the two grew to be friendly. Leland campaigned strongly for Jefferson in Cheshire. In the summer of 1801, John Leland persuaded the ladies of his Baptist congregation in Cheshire, Massachusetts, 
to manufacture a mammoth cheese. He intended to present it to President Jefferson in honor of his republicanism and his support for religious liberty. Word of the cheese-making and its purpose soon spread to the newspapers. A Republican newspaper in Rhode Island reported that the cheese utilized the milk of 900 cows and was formed in a cider press that measured six feet in diameter and had engraved in it the motto, Rebellion to Tyrants is Obedience to God. In January 26, 1802, after the cheese had been delivered, the Norwich packet sarcastically reported that bakers in New York were now preparing an oven of a magnitude sufficient to make a loaf of bread proportionate to the cheese, and that a glass of manufacturer in Albany had already blown a bottle of a size to contain one ton, which they intend to fill with the best American porter. The article included that Mr. Jefferson's convivial friends may not only have cheese, but bread, cheese, and porter. The Baptist elder presented the cheese to Jefferson in a small ceremony in the president's house on New Year's Day. He praised Jefferson for the singular blessings that had been derived from the numerous services you have rendered to mankind in general. Jefferson received the great cheese on January 1st, and it, it was served to guests on the unfinished East Room of the mansion. Jefferson's policy to refuse gifts while in office led him to pay Leland $200 for the cheese. It is in this time of church and cheese that President Jefferson and the Danbury Baptists exchanged letters. It is believed that the arrival of the cheese and the meaning of the gift may have prompted Jefferson to write a letter to the Danbury Baptists Association in Connecticut. The Baptists wrote, Our sentiments are uniformly on the side of religious liberty, that religion is at all times and places a matter between God and individuals, that no man ought to suffer in name, person, or effects on account of his religious opinions, that the legitimate power of civil government extends no further than to punish the man who works ill to his neighbors. But, sir, our constitution of government is not specific. Our ancient charter, together with the law, coincident therewith, were adopted as the basis of our government at the time of our revolution, and such had been our laws and usages, and such still are, that religion is considered as the first object of legislation, and therefore what religious privileges we enjoy as a minor part of the state, we enjoy as favors granted, and not as inalienable rights, and these favors we receive at the expense of such degrading acknowledgments are as inconsistent with the rights of freedom, the rights of free men. It is not to be wondered at, therefore, if those who seek after power and gain under the pretense of government and religion should reproach their fellow men, should reproach their order magistrate as an enemy of religion, law, and good order, because he will not, dare not, assume the prerogatives of Jehovah and make laws to govern the kingdom of Christ. Jefferson responded, 
believing with you that religion is a matter which lies solely between man and his God, that he owes account to none other for his faith or his worship, the le that the legitimate powers of government reach actions only and not opinions. I contemplate with sovereign reverence that the act of the whole American people, which declare that their legislature should make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, thus building a wall of separation between church and state. Adhering to this expression of the supreme will of the nation in behalf of the rights of the consensus, I shall see with sincere satisfaction the progress of those sentiments which tend to restore man to all his natural rights, convinced he has no natural right in opposition to his social duties. This letter is where we get the commonly quoted phrase, a separation of church and state. This isn't in the Bill of Rights, which is something that the Danbury Baptists were arguing about, but Jefferson argued that it's clearly there that this wall, in context of the exchange of letters, was a wall of protection of the church from the government. Jefferson is giving them reassurance that they don't need to fear him or the government. They are concentrating on the prohibiting the free exercise thereof part. So, does the free exercise include voicing one's beliefs and opinions influenced by said religion? Where did Thomas Jefferson draw the line? or see this wall of separation between church and state. That's a tricky one, because two days after he sent the letter to the Danbury Baptists, delivering his wall of separation, Jefferson attended a church service conducted in the House of Representatives. In fact, throughout his administration, Jefferson permitted church services in executive branch buildings. Worship services in the House, a practice that continued until after the Civil War, were acceptable to Jefferson because they were non-discriminatory and voluntary. Preachers of every Protestant denomination appeared. In January 1806, a female evangelist from Britain, Dorothy Ripley, he delivered a, a exhortation in the House to Jefferson, Vice President Aaron Burr, and a crowded audience. Ripley observed her gathered audience she concluded that a very few had been born again and broke into what is described as a urgent camp-meeting-style exhortation. That means she's preaching salvation. She's preaching the need for accepting Jesus, insisting that Christ's body was the bread of life and his blood the drink of the righteous. I don't know all the things she preached at that day. I don't know what she said specifically, but I do know what she preached to Jefferson in private. In 1801, for her first trip in America, she gained an audience with President Jefferson. During the meeting, she rebuked the president for his own slave ownership. She declared that she was particularly concerned for the African-American women who were being exploited by their slave owners. Ripley also met with Jefferson to ask for his permission to minister to slaves, preach to slave owners, and to found a school to educate freed slaves. 
She received the approbation of the president for her work. When in the South, she ministered directly to African slaves and told slave owners the same thing she told Jefferson, that they ought to give up their slaves. And why else, aside from being deists, would Dorothy Ripley see the need to preach to Jefferson and Burr and the other representatives in attendance to save their souls? How did she conclude that very few had been born again? I bet she couldn't understand anyone being a real, genuine, faithful Christian and being a slave owner. Ripley wasn't the only one confronting Jefferson about slavery. John Leland, an abolitionist, noted when presenting Jefferson that large mammoth cheese that this cheese was produced by the personal labor of free-born farmers with the voluntary and cheerful aid of their wives and daughters without the assistance of a single slave. The big cheese was a message. Slavery was unnecessary and should be abolished. Now, if John Leland or Dorothy Ripley were considered inappropriate or dangerous because of the separation of church and state, neither one of these events would have occurred. In both these instances, it shows why religious liberty and expression and exercise is important. To not only be free to assemble from the oppression of the government, but free to point out the moral failures of its government. If we really want to keep away from religion and keep a religion from having any impact on our government, you would have to tell Reverend Jesse Jackson to never run for president or never let Reverend Al Sharpton run for president and having a TV show where he talks about politics or stop Reverend Martin Luther King from giving a speech at the Lincoln Memorial. You'd have to ask Nancy Pelosi and Joe Biden to resign because they're both proud Catholics. We can't have religious nuts telling us what to do. One must think, not only the mistakes of not considering the religious left, but also the mistakes of the religious right. They have allowed their politics to invade their faith. In my opinion, instead of their faith dictating their politics. There's a silly assumption that Jesus was a white Republican. Though how many Jewish carpenters slash rabbis slash messiahs match the description of a white gun-loving Republican? Not a whole lot. I think they have forgotten the definition of a pure religion. If any man among you seem to be religious, and bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man religion is in vain. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction. Does that sound like the religious right to you? Religions of all kinds have an impact on our country. There is no building a wall of separation of church or separation of mosque, separation of synagogue and the state in the hearts of voters or in the hearts of our representatives. So it's pretty clear. It's also clear that after looking at President Jackson and Jefferson,
Whenever someone gives a U.S. president a gift, it's about more than just the cheese. I'm Sam Logan. That's my story. And I'm sticking to it. Thanks for listening. My sources for this episode are thehistory.com, foodandwine.com, that's where I got a lot of my cheese facts, monticello.org, thoughtco.com, and thelibraryofcongress.gov. Thank you very much for listening to this episode, and for those who've been listening all season, thank you for listening all season. Come along with me on another journey of the past, the present, and the personal. And though this is the last episode of the season, I can what I can tell you is that the show is definitely coming back. I just need, as usual, time to <laughs> relax, time to uh, research, uh, plan out exactly what I want to do next. And it's not because I don't have enough ideas. The problem is I have too many stories that I want to tell that I have to take the time to sort it out, research it, shape it, and form it into an actual season episodes. So my goal is to uh, come back as soon as possible. Um, Life is uh, unpredictable, but barring barring anything, you know, (laughs) crazy... Uh, for those anticipating next season, my initial plan is I'd say the latest, I'm, I'm, I'm shooting for, I'd say the latest would be the month of September, would be the latest, um, possible time for season four to come out. So by then, by the, in the month of September, uh, you will be seeing... By then, you'll be getting some, uh, the start of, uh, season four. But maybe, maybe sooner than that. Maybe I'll have more time and, uh, maybe things will kind of line up even faster. Um, but that's, that's the plan right now. I got some ideas going, but I don't want to, I don't want to make the mistake that I made before of, uh, uh, not, you know, uh, announcing stuff and then, oh, I better follow that up. I'll definitely be letting you know about things, uh, that are for sure, uh, going to happen and the topics that will definitely be happening. So again, thank you very much for listening and, um, well, I'll be gone, but don't be gone for too long. So till next season, I'm Sam Logan. Thanks for listening.